When I was first a creationist, a long time ago, what I really wanted to know was, give me answers to the evolutionary arguments. You get something in a textbook, how do I answer it, how do I answer it, how do I answer it? And you know what you end up doing, I've realized after about 20 years? You play a game called whack-a-mole. You know what whack-a-mole is? You've seen it. Something pops up, you pound it down, and you think, oh, I got it, and then something else pops up. It pops up, and you bang, and you bang, and you bang, and you bang, and you bang like that. And when you're discussing things with evolutionists, or even if you're dealing with their textbooks over generations, you see that it is nothing but whack-a-mole. As soon as one argument is answered, another one pops up. And when you're talking with evolutionists, Dr. Bergman just said, they'll say this, well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? And as soon as you answer one of their questions, it's as if you had not even spoken. You just defeated that argument, and they just move on to the next one. And you, you don't just say, well, I just defeated a major point of your theory. Doesn't, shouldn't that make you reconsider your theory a little bit? It's, it, it, that doesn't make them reconsider their theory at all. They just move on to the next one. Well, what about this? Well, what about this? So now I've learned, I better understand a little bit of the theory. Now, as soon as someone says theory, everybody says, uh, stick a finger down my throat. I, I, theory makes me gag. And you know what? There, I'll try to fix my, my microphone. Better yet? Better yet? Better yet? Better yet? Theory actually sets the tone on everything. So, if I were to ask you, how many of you guys are believers? Most of you would probably raise your hand. Okay, aside from the Bible, how does God reveal himself to all of humanity? In creation, yes. Next question, how in creation does he reveal himself? Do the things that are made, meaning you see, you see what? More than order intricate design more than order excellent excellent young lady you see intricate design and you see it's designed because the function of living things corresponds to the function of man-made things it corresponds identically in other words engineering principles will not ever be able to explain life, but engineering principles will be able to explain the functions of all biological things. All biological things will ultimately and can ultimately be explained by engineering principles. And they will correspond, correspond to human-designed things in elements. Sometimes engineers copy it from living things, and we put it into practice. The mere fact that you can copy it means that you can see it. And sometimes it goes the other way. Sometimes you can look at a man-made thing and you don't know how a living thing works, but once you understand how the man-made thing works, it gives you clues to how the living thing works. Do you understand that? It corresponds. It corresponds. And when you see that correspondence, when you see that correspondence, it makes it almost undeniable that this was design, wasn't designed, but this was designed. Because you see the multiple parts working together for a purpose. And what I just said, multiple parts working together for a purpose, is specified complexity. But I just said it in a simpler way. Multiple parts working together for a purpose. Does this have it? Does this have it? Yes, yes. So you're going to see this correspondence. And the Lord made it that way. He made it so that it corresponds, so that anybody in any culture, here's theory, here's theory, Anybody at any culture at any time can look at this and they can know it's made because they know how things are made. How many cultures on this planet have made things? All of them. How many cultures know that things don't make themselves? All of them. See, cultures know things about design which is giving you clues that this was designed. You follow me? Yes. So design, design, yes ma'am. More than order. Design is the name of the game. And evolutionary theory, this is a note-taking thing, is the anti-design theory. It's the anti-design theory at every single level. 
of evolution. And, and you know how many creationists recognize this? Very few. Because creationists and intelligent design people who claim that this was designed don't explain this in terms of design. The vast majority of creationists and intelligent designers claim it's designed, but explain it in terms of the exact same way that evolutionists explain it. Just on a lighter scale. So evolutionists say mutations and natural selection leads to the diversity of life on Earth. Creationists say, well, mutations and natural selection leads to a diversity of a type, but not the diversity of life on Earth. Big, big, big mistake. Massive mistake. Creationist intelligent design people will never, ever advance the ball. They will never, ever break out of evolutionary strongholds until you dump and reject the anti-design explanation and replace it with a design-based explanation. So you in this room, some of you are talking about natural selection. You're wrong, and you will never, ever get to God because natural selection, the natural selector, is the God substitute. It is, a, it is a projection of agency onto the environment, the selector. It is a projection of intelligence onto the environment that is not there and fundamentally is not there and will never be there. So you can make a selection, I can make a selection, God makes selections, all engineers on the planet make selections when we're designing things. I select carpet, not tile. Do you see what I'm saying? Everything in design is always a selection. And you can make real selections because you have a real brain. But the moment you say that nature, which has no brain, no capacity, can select for this and not for that, you have just projected an agency onto the environment that becomes the anti-design agency. Do you follow me? God is the real agent. God exercises real intelligence. God makes real selections. God acts as the real engineer. And it's real because he has a real what? Mind. Real mind. Darwin came up with the anti-design, 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 and says, no, there's not a real mind but nature acts like a what? A mind. And that's why everything in evolutionary theory is going to spin everything on the substitute agent for the real agent. And until you dump the selectionist theory, you will, you will always forever be trapped in evolutionary thinking. So the first half of this talk is to get us out of that. Now, why mutations? Why mutations? Why is there such an emphasis on mutation, mutation, mutation? I'll tell you this. Because mutations are random. And if it's not mutations, it's something else. They are what? Random. Random. Now, is that an anti-design argument? Of course it is. Of course it is. I'm an engineer. I was an engineer before I went to medical school. How much do you think I do as an engineer is random? How much do you think is purposeful? It's all purposeful. I design for a purpose, and the purpose constrains my design. Do you understand that? Purpose and design are, are inextricable. Inextricable. So if I were to say the word purposeful, purposeful, what words come to your mind are the non-purposeful words? Random, accidental, unintentional, those are the words that come to your mind which are the anti-design purposeful words. So what do you see in evolutionary literature? Random, unintentional, accidental. Everything is, and I could go on and on and on about theory. Everything about evolutionary theory hits at the anti-design and more specifically the anti-engineer the anti-behaviors and activities of engineers altogether. And I'll get into this talk. So I did a debate. I'm going to do a whiteboard here. A few weeks ago, I had to answer three questions with three theistic evolutionary opponents, two other theistic evolutionary opponents, me and two others. The first question was, which, how do you explain Genesis? 
How do you interpret it? Two, what's your take on evolutionary theory, and is it compatible with Christian faith? And three, are you open to nature showing design? And we only had 20 minutes to do, these, to do this whiteboard talk, so I had to speak very, very quickly <laughs> on that. I'm, ju- I, I, I'm jumping to question number three first. I'm not going to take it in there, goofy order. I'm going to go with design, design, design. So we have our little whiteboard here, and boom, look at that. Are you open to the natural world pointing to design? And my answer to that question was, yes, of course. But I am jumping to something biblical. I said what? The workmanship seen in living things. I didn't just say they look complex or they look ordered. I said they show workmanship. Now, why do I get those words? Because the he- Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his workmanship, his handiwork. And when you get to Romans chapter 1, when it says they're understood by the things that are made, that Greek word is used only one other time in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where it says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So really, Romans chapter 1 could be more accurately translated. The creation shows it, and we understand it by his what? Workmanship. Wow, that's more precise. Far more precise. Far more precise. You look at a car, you see workmanship. You look at me, you see a phenomenal workmanship. I mean, it's just... Uh, that's what my wife says. But anyway, so we're, we're, we're thinking about from now on for the rest of your life, please change your thinking. When you look at living things, you're looking for what? Workmanship, features of workmanship. All right. Now, I want to talk about just one, adaptability. Adaptability, because that's the name of the game when it comes to evolution. If organisms could not change, could you get a theory of evolution going? No. But because they can change, you can maybe extrapolate. So, look at these fish. You have sighted fish and blind cave fish. How might creatures adapt to very intense environmental changes? How do you go, if, could a sighted fish find itself suddenly in a cave environment? And could it change? This is theory. If God said he made creatures to be fruitful, multiply, and what? Fill the earth. Fill the earth. Thank you, young man. All you guys have been in church for a long time. You should know that. Fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. He gave that in Genesis chapter 1. He gave it before there was any death and disease. He gave it before there was any dying. So the earth had to be a dynamic place, and organisms had to be able to fill it. That means they had to be what from the very beginning? Adaptable. Adaptable. (laughs) Man, alive. I love you. Adaptable. Adaptable right from the very beginning. So when God said be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, did that include caves? Yes, it did. So organisms had to be able to fill caves right from the beginning of the earth. So research is now finding anything but random and unintentional. Research is now finding in terms of adaptability that it's what? Regulated, rapid, repeatable, and often reversible with highly targeted responses. So I'm leading off with my evolutionary colleagues And I am pounding on theory right away. I am going to cut their legs out on randomness, the anti-design explanation. And I'm saying anything but. When I look at adaptable things, what are the R's? They are regulated, rapid, repeatable, often reversible, and here's the key, with targeted solutions. Evolutionary solutions are what? Trial and error, hit and miss. Some of them work, most of them don't. Is that an anti-design explanation? Of course it is. How many of you guys want engineers making stuff that's trial and error? You want the beams on this building to be trial and error? I mean, no way. Engineers do things, the last words up there on the slide, they make solutions that are targeted, specific, Here's a problem, here's my specific solution. Evolution says trial and error. This is why I'm saying everything about evolutionary theory, once you start studying it, is the anti-design explanation. We need to dump it once and for all and start moving what real science is telling us. 
wow, I don't have a lot of time, so let's go to blind cave fish. It's not just one kind of fish that can go blind. Up there on the screen shows you many different types of fish where they're sighted, and here they are in their blind form, three different types of fish. So lots of fish can get into caves and lose their sight. Does that sound accidental? Or maybe there's mechanisms that when they find themselves into caves that they could lose their sight. Hmm. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you stuff that should make you all say, whoa, I never heard that before because you've never been taught this stuff by evolutionists. Well, the answer is yes. Here's an experiment that was done, and there's multiple mechanisms back in 2013 where these fish, these fish are able to detect when they are in the cave. They're not detecting light. They're detecting water conditions. In fact, the ability of the water to conduct electricity. And when they detect a change in that, their offspring, not in multiple generations, in one generation, can be born without eyes. Oh, whoa. <laughs> there you go. Whoa, whoa. One generation. And not only that, the place in their skull where their eyes were, their orbits were filling up, those parts of the brain are increased for tactile sensation and smell. It sounds like a complete design mechanism saying, now you're in a cave, live in the cave. Hmm. So they can go from this partially to completely blind and look at their pigmentation, hypopigmented, potentially in one generation because of mechanisms that are what? Regulated, rapid, repeatable, because this happens time and time again with fish. And what kind of solution? Targeted solutions. Is this a targeted solution? Yes, it is. Okay, what about these beaks? Oh, man, we've told this silly story about big beaks eat the big seeds, small beaks eat small seeds, therefore the birds die off. And evolutionary view is always a dying explanation. Well, what happens if the birds could sense the food that they're eating and they adjust their beaks accordingly instead of that silly story about death and survival? fractioning out the genes and all that other kind of stuff. Well, actually an experiment was done, a natural experiment. Well, several populations of these finches on the Galapagos Islands, since people have started moving in, some of the finches are living next to the people and they're eating scrap people food. Those are called the urban finches. While some of the finches are still living out in the wild, those are called the rural finches. And guess what? Within just a few generations, Urban finches have different types of beaks than the rural finches because they're eating people-type scrap foods. And they're not changing the genes. They're changing markers on the genes which, express, which change the expression of the genes in development so that the birds develop a beak right for their food. So blind cave fish and Darwin's finches show that organisms are adjusting themselves. Is the food changing the finch? No, it isn't. The finch, like all designed things, changes itself. It changes itself. Massive evolutionary pushback right there. Environments don't shape you. You shape yourself. Massive evolutionary pushback. Massive. I can't tell you how massive it is, except by saying it's what? Massive. Because evolutionists see the environments as shaping you. Engineers know that's crazy. If I'm going to build something that is going to adapt, I better build into it what it needs to do to adapt, or it will not get it. External, internal. Design is internal. Evolutionary theory is external. Wow. That's a big theory because internal begins with a designer. Evolutionary theory begins with nature. Big point, big point. Okay, what about these peppered moths? Peppered moths, peppered moths. We all know the story that the pollution started and then the birds could see the light moths on the dark trees and therefore they pecked them off and all that kind of stuff. What if the moths could detect this change in color? Well, this paper came out, Industrial Melanism. It, to cut to the chase, it's this. Parts of your DNA are mobile. There's parts that don't stay in one spot. They can move around, move around. And when they move around in a highly regulated way, 
they change expressions of genes. Well, here's a gene causing dark color or light color, and guess what? Part of this mobile DNA plopped right down in the regulator for the genes causing dark color so that over 96% of the moths that are black have this mobile point bingo right here in the regulator for darkness. And 0% of the moths that are white have that piece of mobile DNA. Does that sound random or does that sound purposeful? Purposeful. And it's highly controlled. It's highly regulated. So maybe there's a mechanism that these organisms are able to detect their changes. Here's another cool one. You guys live up north down in Texas, they don't understand this. That's a big, what kind of fish is this? Pike. It's a big old pike. They're a predator. And they can eat carp, they can eat bass, they can eat trout. And this is a lakes up in Minnesota. There's a carp fish there. As long as that predator is eating the trout or it's eating a bass, the carp are just fine. But as soon as this pike eats one of these carp and digests it, and puts into the water the oozes of the digested carp, the other carp can detect that, and in one day, they morph from this to this shape, making them harder to be eaten by a pike. How many days? One day. And they're detecting the vapors of a digested carp. They're not detecting, they don't care if it's eating a trout, but if it eat one, eats one of us, we change. Hmm. Hmm, that doesn't sound like trial and error at all. Oh, here's another cool one. These are rephrase. This is a male, highly colorful. This is a female. Uh, one male usually has about a harem of 10 to 12 females that it covers on that. They look quite different from each other, obviously. But what happens if a fisherman comes by and snags that male out of the harem? One of the females detects that the male is gone, and within a day, her ovaries regress, she grows testicles, and she morphs into a male, color and all. Wow. Oh, see, I told you you'd be saying, wow, wow. I never, I never heard this, never heard this stuff. Is this like anti-evolutionary thinking? Of course it is. Hmm. Here's another fish. This fish lives down in Mexico in polluted rivers, rivers that have been polluted by hydrogen sulfide. That's the rotten egg gas. But it's living in that river. That's because it has all kinds of sensors, just like you do, all over its body for all kinds of things. And in its gills, it has a sensor for, of all things, hydrogen sulfide. And when it detects hydrogen sulfide in that stream, it doesn't upregulate a gene or downregulate a gene. As you can see there on the slide, it upregulates how many genes? 1,600 and downregulates 1,800 genes. And these genes control how fast it absorbs hydrogen sulfide, puts barriers to keep it up, they control how fast it excretes hydrogen sulfide out of its body, and they control how fast its liver metabolizes hydrogen sulfide. Targeted solutions to specific problems vary, very, very. And it's not the gene, the gene. It's genes, highly regulated. You know what my evolutionary colleagues are thinking about now? Wow, I don't know how to answer this because evolutionists don't even talk about this. And they're not even framing this in a design standpoint. Oh, here's a cool one. Mice warn grandsons of dangers via sperm. <laughs> this is an interesting experiment. Take male mice, put them on a metal pad that can shock their feet painfully. I don't do this. Evolutionists do. Expose them to cherry blossom odor. The moment you expose them to cherry blossom odor, give them a shock. Expose them, shock them, expose them, shock them, shock, 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 shock. You take these male mice, men them with naive female mice. What's a naive female? Not what humans are looking for. A naive female is one that's never spelled cherry blossom odor before. They mate. She has pups. Sacrifice the pups immediately upon birth. Ooh, that's, that's heartless. And then you dissect through their olfactory region and you stain it looking for the bulbs for cherry blossom odor and the nerves. And this is what those look like. Here's the controls, here's the bulbs, here's the nerves through their nose region, and here's the pups that were born to dad exposed to cherry blossom odor. 200% increase in the bulbs and nerves specific for cherry blossom odor. Wow, that doesn't sound like natural selection. It sounds like a very targeted explanation for these kinds of things. And of course, 
Such information will be an efficient way to inform your offspring about changes in the environment. Hmm, these are very interesting changes here. Well, how is this working? Remember I said there's a correspondence between what we see in living and man-made things. Is this an adaptable system? How many of you recognize what that is? That is a cruise control on your car. Cruise control. Wake up. Cruise control <laughs> on that. Is that an adaptable system? How does it work? Well, your car has sensors, speed sensors. They send signals to computers on the car, logic centers, and they send output to what? Change your throttle all the time. So if that's how man-made adaptable systems work, by the way, if you didn't have the sensors, could you adapt? If you didn't have if-then logic, could you adapt? If you didn't have an output, could you adapt? If you're missing any of those, you could not adapt. Therefore, all of those show all-or-nothing unity. They all must be there. Do living creatures adapt by the same way? Could living creatures be using sensors and logic and output? adjusting us? The answer is yes. And what's interesting is when you build something as an engineer, an engineer has to think in advance. What kind of challenges is the thing I'm building going to face? And they think in advance the challenges, and guess what they build in advance? The solutions to those challenges. And if the engineer messes up and they don't think of a challenge and they don't put the solution in, what happens to your thing? It breaks. It breaks. So the solutions are not, here's an anti-evolutionary thought. Not only does the environment not shape you, you shape yourself. The solutions that you come up with, they're not due to the challenges. They, pro they preceded the challenges. They were in you in advance. They were in you in advance. So we're just kicking all of this silly evolutionary theory out. You know who resists a lot of this? Other creationists, because other creationists think like evolutionists. And this is how they see the world. You gotta see it a little differently. You have to see it as if it's really, really designed. Romans 1, and this was just to emphasize that workmanship because I didn't give the prelude to my debate on that. So, if what I'm saying is true, can I make some predictions? Of course I can, I had to reduce it to two. And here's my predictions. The creatures will self-adjust. You notice I'm not using the word adapt. Because as an engineer, when I make something that's adaptable, I'm actually making it so that it can self-adjust. And adaptation has kind of been polluted by evolutionists because they see it as the environment adapting the thing. I'm keeping the emphasis on the thing that God created and say that it adapts itself. It adapts itself. So when organisms self-adjust to changing environments, they're going to do it by the same engineering principles as human design things. So now all you have to do is just find something in biology that can't be explained by engineering principles. That's going to be hard. And just will show that not 99%, but 100%. 100% of adaptive capacity is going to be in the entity. This is a massive pushback against evolutionary thinking. Massive. I'm, you know, I'm not being shaped by my environment. I shape myself. I detect environmental changes. Am I different because of the experiences I've had in life? Of course I am. Of course I am. But I am only able to be different because of my experiences, because my designer built within me the ability to experience and adjust to my experiences. Does that make sense? Radically different. Okay, so here's a bright idea. Organisms have sensors to detect and systems that track changing environments over multiple generations. Now, hopefully, what I just said will liberate your thinking once and for all from seeing organisms as being driven by their environment, molded by their environment, as being passive modeling clay of their environment, shaped and molded by some magical selector, some magical projection of agency onto the environment that it doesn't really have, run by mutations, run by random things, run by undirected stuff, run by all that anti-design things.
And you will see it as the exact opposite. Organisms are active, problem-solving, highly designed entities that regulate their responses, producing highly targeted solutions to problems, taking on challenges, and filling environments over time as God created them. That's, that will liberate your thinking. I just gave you the anti-evolutionary explanation, a highly design-based, highly workmanship-based explanation. And from this point on, you should never see creatures like we saw them again. Wow. Well, that was only question number one. <laughs> question number two, what is your take on Darwinian evolution, and is it compatible with Christian faith? This is actually two questions. Two questions rolled in one. What's your take on Darwinian evolution? My take was that Darwinian evolution is a weak scientific theory. Weak scientific theory and poor explanation for the design of living things. And then, of course, part two of the question was that the basic premises are incompatible with Christian faith. Unfortunately, because of this question, I have to go back to the, I have to go to whack-a-mole. Whack-a-mole. Answers. Well, why is it a poor theory? Well, Dr. Bergman just gave a whole talk on this point right here. If evolution is true, you have to get life going and you have to be able to change it. Well, they can't explain how life got going by natural processes, and Dr. Berman just did a whole talk on that. So they can't get going right out of the block. And second, they can't change it from one type of creature to another because all observations confirm biological limits to change. And it is a massive invocation of imagination what did I say? A massive invocation of imagination. That's what that whole book out there on 20 evolutionary blunders is about. It's a whack-a-mole, but it's telling you how they're imagining something that they're seeing, and they're rolling it into their explanation. So, for these two reasons, they're wrong. They're wrong on this prediction, that life should start out and branch off over time, becoming ever and ever, ever more diverse. And what we know from the fossil record is that all the major body plans show up from the very beginning. And when I talk about major body plans, I'm talking about jellyfish, clams, arthropods, vertebrates. They all show up right away. You don't start off with something and then it becomes these things. They're right there from the beginning. So they were wrong. Wrong on a natural origin of life, wrong on changing it from one type to another, wrong on their prediction of how you should find it in the fossil record. They're wrong on the fact that all of these similar features that you see here are due to common ancestry. In other words, they look at you and they look at your children. They say your children are like you but not exactly like you. And the reason why they're like you is because you're their parents, common ancestry. But we find dolphins, which are mammals, and fish up there, they're showing a lot of the same type of features for living in the water. That eye of that squid and the human eye are very, very similar to each other. But there's no common ancestor for those. Those things branched off ages and ages ago, according to their theory. Why do we have similar things? It's not due to common ancestry. They're going to come up with a magical explanation called what? Convergent evolution, which is an ad hoc, magical, add-on explanation. And then we predicted these things. We predicted similar features. This is the founder of our organization. Way before they could sequence DNA, he said that he thinks there's going to be a common information due to common design. And Ernst Mayer said, you're wasting your time looking for similar information because these organisms diverged ages and ages ago. They're going to be radically, radically different. Well, Sean Carroll showed in 2005, or at least he reported on it, that there's lots of similar information for these similar features. And he said it was stunning and it was undeniable. And he said no evolutionist had a clue that you would find this similar information. So they were wrong again. They were wrong on the fact that or these whales have these bones, which they say are vestigial, leftover hip bones, from when some land creature went back into the water and lost its legs. And you'll see this all over the place. Well, creationists said, no, they're there for a purpose. Well, these researchers in California found out they're there for mating. I mean, if you're going to copulate underwater moving, you better have some bony structures to anchor your soft tissues in place. Because copulating underwater is not an easy thing. Never done it. 
but I can just imagine <laughs> on that. And this is, here's two, here's two dolphins copulating underwater. Right there, I bet you've never seen that. And what's interesting is this is a bottlenose male, and this is a spotted dolphin female. Two different species, but they're mating, and they're going to have fertile offspring. I don't know what this male is hanging out there for, but anyway, <laughs> he's just a perp, a pervert, you know? All right, and this is where you play the whack-a-mole. They said your appendix was useless, but we show it has a full of function. They were wrong on that. They say that you have a tailbone. We say it's useful. It anchors important bone and muscles and things down there. And if you think it's useless, we'll pay for you to have your surgery to have it taken out. <laughs> but you pay for the diapers you'll be in the rest of your life. Hmm. They were wrong about gill slits. There's no gill slits on human beings. Never have been, never will, never manifest anything like gill tissue. They were wrong on that. They were wrong on junk DNA. The more you search for stuff that used to be called junk, you find useful function for it. In fact, you find regulatory function. They're wrong on the fact that humans and chimps are 98% similar, and Dr. Bergman will spend a whole talk on that after lunch. They were wrong, 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 wrong. But that's whack-a-mole. Do you know how the fact that they were wrong on all of these things has ever deterred evolutionary theory? Not at all. It just keeps marching on. Wrong on all of that. They were wrong on Neanderthals. This was the picture that I had for most of my life growing up, that they were these brutish ape men, not quite human, not quite apes, something in between. We now find D Neanderthal DNA in all of us on that. Just be careful if you mate with one on that. You might pick up a disease. They were wrong, and they invoke a lot of imagination. Tremendous amount of imagination. What's scientific about this? When you can take these bones and you come up with this, this likeness right there. I mean, to go from this to this, this to this, is that a tremendous amount of imagination? That's, a, that's incredible. I've seen gals in Texas that look kind of, <laughs> you know, kind of like that down there. Wow. It's just an incredible thing. Or how... That was in the 70s. Here's 2015. You go from this to this. Tremendous amount of imagination. Running through imagination mill. What about this idea that it's compatible with Christian faith? I said it's fundamentally incompatible. That's because you go right back to what the Bible says about Adam and Eve. And the evolutionists and theistic evolutionists, they all start from the same position, that there wasn't a real Adam, whether you're full-blown evolutionists like the Leakeys, Adam's ancestor, or you're a theistic evolutionist. And you come up with premises that are totally contrary to biblical teaching. The Bible says that Adam was a direct creation by God, but they say he was a descent from an ape-like ancestor. He was the first human, but they say the first human is indeterminate. The Bible says God made Adam and Eve, a pair of humans. They say they descended from a population. Nothing close. On top of that, the Bible says in all of these passages, Genesis, Romans, Galatians, and on, the bottom line is that a real man brought real sin and real death needing real redemption. Real man, real sin, real death needing real redemption. And theistic evolutionists and evolutionists have nothing that's compatible with that. Obviously, I just pounded on natural selection showing you where it's a mystical mental construct. I can say this with all fact. None of you in this room has ever seen natural selection happen. Even though in your brain, you think you see it, just like in your brain, you look at rock layers and some of you see really, really old ages. It's just something in your brain. I can challenge you this. Any of you in this room, show me a scientific paper which, which actually shows that identifies nature selecting something. It's not out there. Actually quantifies a selection pressure. It's not out there. Actually identifies what the unit of selection is. It's not out there. These are three basic points on natural selection. Selection happens, selection pressures, selection uh, object of selection, and nobody can identify any of those things. But not only is natural selection this mystical mental construct, which people really, really think they see in their brain, but it's not really happening, it's a death-driven worldview. In, the, in their worldview, the entire diversity of life on earth is due to this. It's all due to that. 
And that's why Steve Jobs, when he's dying of pancreatic cancer, said at a commencement address at Stanford, death is very likely the best single invention of life. It's life's change agent. But the Bible says completely the opposite, that death is a curse. Death is an enemy. Death is going to be defeated. So how in the world are you going to reconcile a death-driven worldview with that? In addition to this, the Bible says that God's God's handiwork, his workmanship is clearly seen, and it reveals something about him. What you see here are some gears. They're real gears in a real living creature, a plant hopper. This is the plant hopper. Plant hoppers jump like grasshoppers, but they do it a lot faster. They jump, their jump takes one thirty millionth of a second. They go from zero to 700 Gs that fast. And their legs have to work at the same time, their rear jumping legs. So how do they make them extend at the exact same time? Back at the joint, they're geared together. Geared together. Now when I look at that, I see workmanship. But evolutionists say, no, that's only an illusion of workmanship. That's just an illusion of workmanship. Hmm. Well, that's completely incompatible with it. So, I don't find anything about evolutionary theory really compatible with Christian faith. And then finally, how do you interpret and understand Genesis 1 and 2? Those are important questions, but you notice I didn't jump off on those questions. I jumped to what the Bible says, go to the design first. Once people, it's like Dr. Bergman was saying, science can lead you to faith. I start with the science. I get them seeing all the science. I get them seeing all those creatures that are like, really tracking the environments and really, really changing. They're changing what? Them? Selves. They're changing themselves. I start with that first. I show those gears. I show that stuff first. And then I'll tell you why I understand and how I understand Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, how I understand it, are historical narrative. It's not allegory. It's not poetry. It's an historical narrative. And how do I interpret it? I give words their normal meaning in their normal context, just like I was taught up the road here at Moody Bible Institute about five hours away by traffic. (laughs) It's about 40 miles away by distance, but you better start moving now if you want to get there by tomorrow. So um, that's how I interpret it. Now, why do I do that? Well, this just says what I just told you, historical narrative. As a medical doctor, I give words their normal meaning in their normal context just like everybody else does with every other type of literature. Up there is a prescription. Can you all read that with your good peepers? Right here, this says it's a tenolol, 150 milligrams, by mouth, daily. How many of you have gotten a script like that? A tenolol, 150 milligrams, by mouth, daily. Those words are given their normal meaning in their normal context on that. I want them to take this drug, this much. This is how, daily. Now what happens if the pharmacist said, well, what what in the world does Dr. Galuza mean by mouth? (laughs) By mouth, I mean like mouth of a cave, mouth of a river. What What does he mean by mouth? So they substitute what mouth means, natural opening. So he changes my script to say a tenolol, 150 milligrams by a natural opening daily. Hmm? Mm -mm. No. We give words their normal meaning in their normal context. Before I went to medical school, I was an engineer, and we did contracts. One of them was for a rehab of buildings, lots and lots of buildings. And the contractor was to tear things out, repair them, and one clause said, contractor shall apply two coats of paint. Contractor shall apply two coats of paint. The contractor went out, applied one coat to every room in all the buildings, and left. The government inspector said, that's not right. Contract says two coats of paint. The contractor sent us a letter that said, the contract means one coat thick enough to equal two coats. Uh, And he put on a thick coat. We said, no, the contract means what? Two coats of paint. Well, you know what? This went to court because the contract had didn't want to come back again, went to court. And he insisted, I put on a really thick coat, it meets the, meets the criteria. And who do you think won, the government or that contractor? 
Oh, you cynics. On that, the government won this. This was a slam dunk. The judge said, in contract law, words must be construed to their normal meaning in the context of the specification. Otherwise, the intentions of either party becomes what? Unknowable. May I suggest we should approach our Bible the same way? Because it's not enough to just say it is the Word of God. It's useless to be the Word of God if you can't understand what it means. That's not heretical. It means if you don't know what it means or I can make it mean anything I want, it's not the Word of God. It's historical narrative because you can look at the grammar of Hebrew poetry and you can look at the grammar of historical narrative passages and the grammar of Genesis 1 and 2 pops right in with historical passages. That's very objective. Wow, these guys, reformers, all the way from Huss and Tyndale and everybody up to Martin Luther and, and Calvin, they thought that biblical clarity was a Reformation issue, which means that you can understand what the Bible says, which means God is able to communicate exactly what he wants to say that people can read it and understand it. And the dominant Roman Catholic view was, no, the Bible was somewhat mystical. You must have someone read it for you and tell you what it means. Read it for you and tell you what it means. And the, and the reformer said, no, 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 God is able to communicate. You don't have to have someone tell you what it means. You can read it for yourself. In fact, anybody can read the Bible and interpret it correctly. Anybody. Does that even mean unbelievers? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Unbelievers can pick up the Bible. They can read Genesis chapter 1, and they can say, you know what? It sounds like God created the earth in six days. And then the unbeliever will say what? That's crazy. That's crazy. They understand it well. The Bible doesn't say that. It says it's foolishness to them. It doesn't say it's incomprehensible to them. It says it's foolishness. So they can read it. They can understand it. They can interpret it correctly, but then they just say it's nuts. It doesn't mean anything to them. Well, the reformers disagreed, and they said the Bible was inherently clear that anybody could read that. Well, how did we get to that? Well, here's some biblical passages. Deuteronomy chapter 30 says for the Pentateuch, you don't have to go across the ocean and get someone to tell you what it means. It's near to you and right in your heart. And all of those passages where the Holy Spirit will come, and he will do what? Lead you into all truth, all truth. And then you see there in Acts... Right over here, chapter 17, Paul is speaking to the Bereans, and he's telling them what the Bible says. And the Bible says the Bereans didn't look to Paul to tell them what the truth was. They looked at the Bible to see if Paul was telling the truth. They were able to understand it for themselves. So this is very, very important. So you don't need religious authorities to tell you how to understand the Bible. And in today's age, you don't need scientific authorities to tell you how to understand the Bible. And I can guarantee you there are many, many churches in this area where the pastors have acquiesced and they're letting the scientists tell them how to understand the Bible. Not this pastor, but others. So that means whether you're an Alka Indian and no matter what age you lived in, anybody at any time could read the translated Bible and they could understand it. And they didn't have to have someone tell them. That's really important because as soon as I put someone up here telling you what the Bible says, they become your authority and not the Bible. They become your authority. Wow. Now what about pragmatism? Because I hear this all the time, and this was to head off an argument from them that's saying, well, you guys, you guys who believe the Bible, six days, you know what you're doing? You're wrecking evangelism because people think you're nuts. And people think you're crazy. And nobody's going to listen to you because as soon as you say that, they say, you're wacko. You're wacko. So you're ruining evangelism. You need to, if you really want to reach people, you need to kind of like weave in a little bit of this secular thinking into your Bible. Is that really, really true? This is a study just published in 2017 by researchers from Harvard and Indiana, University of Indiana. Secularists. And they've done polls on churches over the years. And here's churches over time. 
that say the Bible is inspired, but not literal, whatever that means. Here's churches that say the Bible is a literal word of God, and here's the number of people who say the Bible is a book of fables. It's increasing. Look at the, this is membership over time. The membership of churches who say it's inspired but not literal has done what? Plummeted. And the churches who say that the Bible is the word of God, what's happened to their membership? Stayed the same. And what's happened to the membership of the non-believers, the green line on the bottom? Up. And you know where these people are coming from, the unbelievers? They're coming from this group. So the facts show it's just the exact opposite. Churches that stand with the word of God, people hear a clear message, they love the clear message, and that's what they're coming for, and that's what they want to get. People hear the wishy-washy message, after a while they say, I get this at Nova, I get this at National Geographic, I might as well think like one of them. So, the final reason, just the Bible itself. The Lord Jesus said, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Quoting from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Bang, bang, bang. The Apostle Paul also believed in this. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so shall all in Christ be made alive. And I think I saw something painted on the, a wall in the church here. 1 Corinthians 15. If you can't believe in a literal Adam, how can you believe in a second Adam? Or something to that effect. It's on there. So that's why I take the Bible as history, and I give words their normal meaning in their normal context. Wow. That's a lot. Hopefully you took notes really, really fast. What's the main thing I want you to take away from all of this? A fundamentally different view of how organisms adapt. Fundamentally different. See if you followed me. I'm an organism, and I'm starting over here on the evolutionist side. What do they say about me? I am being what? Shaped, molded, and made, driven and shaped by selection pressures through random, unintentional, undirected mutations, fractioned out, and a struggle for what? Survival. Survival, <laughs> existence, life and death. I'm molded from the outside by accidental things, and it's all happening by this substitute agent. The substitute agent which we project thinking power onto what? Nature. Nature. And we project the thinking power by, we say, nature, what's the key word? Selects. Because as soon as you say something can select, you are implying it has what? A mind, intelligence. This was all the anti. The Bible and science say, no, organisms are active, problem-solving creatures that have highly regulated, very rapid solutions to problems which precede that, which are very targeted. And therefore, they take on problems excuse me, they're fruitful, and they multiply, and what do they do? They fill the earth. Running from the inside out, shaped from the outside in. Two fundamentally different things. This is the two differences in theory. Design theory, evolutionary theory. If you, if you can grab that, it'll change your view. Amen? Amen.